Welcome again to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now this week, Pastor Kirk is continuing a message in a series entitled 50 Days That Changed the World. Well, if you're looking for a church home, a place to call your own and and a people to connect with, let me invite you to come and worship with us. Calvary Baptist Church is located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. You can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. Call us at 479-442-4634 or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Well, again, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing a message from John chapter 21, verses 15 through 22, entitled Unfinished Business. Let's listen together. Have you read the book of Hebrews chapter 11 lately? That's not our text. You don't need to turn over there. But if you're familiar, you know that it's God's uh, great hall of fame or hall of faith. It is the faith chapter of God's word. It tells us about men and women who persevered great trials and great difficulties uh, in, in spite of, uh, and their faith persevered in spite of all of those difficulties and problems. But when you also think about those people and you read their stories in the Old Testament particularly, you will notice that they are all flawed human beings. They all struggled with sin just like you and me. Their faith, even though they are recognized for their faith, at times their faith failed them, just like sometimes your faith and my faith fails us. Abraham lied not once, but twice about his wife. Their son Isaac did the same thing. Sarah laughed at God's promise and then denied that she had laughed at all. Isaac's son Jacob was a conniver par excellence. I mean, he was, he was the ultimate manipulator till it all got caught up with him. Noah got drunk. Samson was immoral. Gideon was fearful and afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer and murderer, yet he was still a man after God's own heart. Explain that to me. That is a bit of an enigma. It always has been. Elijah was suicidal at one point. Jonah ran from God. The disciples fell asleep in a prayer meeting. Have you ever done that? The Samaritan woman was divorced, not once, but several times. And on and on we could go. In fact, if the Lord was still writing his word, he might even shed some light on your story and mine. He might continue with saying, by the way, have you heard of the faith of Jason Burns? Yet he did such and such. Or what about Joe Land? Or what about Debbie Avis? Oh, man. Her story could write a book. You know, he could write stories about us. Amen. Yet in spite of all of that, God used these people, right? He used them. And the story, and, and they're examples for us, but their story is not all about their sin. It's not to make us feel better about our sin because they sin too, but it is to inspire us and in how God used them in spite of their sins and failures. Amen. 
Now, another failure, another person who failed miserably was the Apostle Peter. You remember that, right? We talked about that in recent weeks. Well, Jesus came, and during these last 50 or 40, his last 40 days on earth, these last 50 days before Pentecost, keep in mind that Jesus needed to finish up some business with Peter, right? We read about that in John chapter 21. I've titled this message, Unfinished Business, and we read the story here beginning in chapter 21 with verse 15. Now, if you remember the context, we'll not read the first 14 verses. This is the third time Jesus appears to the apostles after the resurrection. Okay, the first two times were in Jerusalem. This is at the Sea of Galilee, back where it began. Okay, and there are seven disciples. They've been out fishing all night. It was a, a bad night fishing. They didn't catch anything. Jesus appears on the shore, and he calls out to them. They recognize him. They he tells them to cast the net on the other side of the boat, which if they weren't catching fish on this side, why this side? But they did it, and they make a great haul, great catch. And they come into shore. By the time that uh, they get there, he has built a fire and he has some fish cooking uh, over the coals. And we have this encounter beginning in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That is John, if you'll remember. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me make some observations about this story. 
uh, to kind of set it in its context and draw some parallels that, that I think that you'll see are very clear. Uh, but I want to kind of talk about this story for just a few minutes, and then I'm going to list out five different points for you to kind of frame the message. I realize a frame only has four sides, but, but this picture has a five-sided frame, all right? So you prepared, be prepared to write those things down. If you'd like, they'll be on the screen. First of all, uh, notice the context. We've already touched on that. This is Jesus' third time to appear to these disciples. Uh, he had appeared to them twice in, in uh, uh, Jerusalem and now here at the Sea of Galilee. Also, when you read this story, if it sounds a little bit familiar to you, there are what we might call some haunting echoes in this story, some reminders of past events and experiences. For instance, there is the reminder of when Jesus first called Peter to follow him. That's recorded in Luke chapter 5. And you remember that on that occasion, some three and a half years before, the circumstances were very similar to this situation. For instance, they had been on a long night of fishing. That's when these commercial fishermen fished in the Sea of Galilee, was during the dark hours, overnight hours. And they had been on a long night of fishing, but the night was fruitless. That, that night before Jesus called Peter and these other disciples to follow him and become disciples was very similar to this one. They had fished all night and hadn't caught anything. Uh, you find that Jesus commands them to put out the nets on that first occasion. Uh, you know, they were a bit reluctant about that because it would just be kind of like dropping sails when there was no wind, you know. It's not going to catch anything. Uh, but Jesus tells them to put out the nets, this time on the other side of the boat, and they, they catch a, a great number of fish. That first occasion, the fish were so heavy and so many in number that it was about to break the nets. And here, it was likewise a great catch. Uh, not only that, but um, uh, they came to shore and they, and they met up with Jesus. But here, Jesus is not calling Peter to follow him, though he says that, he's just renewing that call. He is here not to call him into ministry. That's already happened. He is here to restore him to ministry because Peter had failed miserably and needed to be restored. There was the threat, no doubt, that Peter would never preach the word or speak for Christ ever again had he not been restored to ministry on this day. Only a few days earlier than this, keep in mind, here's some more of those haunting echoes. Peter had stood beside a fire and denied that he knew Jesus. And here he is, when he gets to shore, standing by a fire, confessing his love and loyalty to Jesus. At the Passover meal, if you remember, Peter had boasted of his love for the Lord, vowing to never forsake him. Now Peter is sitting down to another meal with Jesus, and again, uh, he is being asked three times if he truly, truly loves the Lord. This, this has so many uh, little, um, not coincidental, because it's not an accident but so many little reminders of the events uh, of the recent past. 
Now, Jesus asked Simon, which was Peter's real name, Simon, son of John, he asked him, do you love me more than these? Now, there's a big disagreement over exactly what Jesus is talking about. In fact, I've got a whole shelf full of commentaries that if you want to look it up for yourself, even the, the great theologians don't agree on exactly what Jesus was talking about. It could have been any one of three different things. He could have been saying, Peter, do you love me more than you love these other men? These other of your uh, comrades in your fishing endeavor and in your uh, discipleship, your apostleship? Do you love me more than you love them? It's doubtful that's what Jesus was asking. It's possible he was saying, Peter, do you love me more than these other things, these nets, these hooks, this boat, this way of life? Do you love me and following me more than you love this way of life that you've gone back to? It's possible that's what he was asking. More than likely, he was saying, Peter, do you love me more than these, meaning more than these other men love me? You boasted of your love for me. You even said at the Passover meal that though these other guys, men you've known longer than me, though they all fail you, I never will. It could be that he's saying now, do you love me more than these men love me? Now keep in mind, they all failed in their faith that night before the crucifixion, right? Peter's the one that, that we hold up as an example of uh, committing awful sin, of betraying and denying the Lord. But though you deny the Lord in your words or in your actions, isn't it really, for the most part, the same thing? Not totally, not totally. But you and I, you see, every time we don't obey something we know the Lord has told us to do, that is a form of denial. Every time that we don't follow Christ and His Word completely and wholeheartedly, that is a type of denial. Someone has said the only part of the Bible any of us really believe is that part of the Bible that we're willing to obey. And I think that there's some truth to that. Now, true, to curse and swear and verbally deny Jesus in the sound and with the earshot of other people, that is a grievous sin. And certainly, Peter was guilty. But understand, all of these men, to some degree, needed to be restored to faithful service and ministry. So with that all as the background, let me give you uh, very quickly some points to frame this. Keep in mind, Jesus is doing a work of forgiving Peter's sin and healing him of all shame and all accusation and restoring him to meaningful service. 
Why is he doing this for Peter? Why is Peter's sin not so great that the Lord ought to have just totally rejected him? Because it was God's plan in just a few days for Peter to stand up and preach before thousands and to see the conversion of at least 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. Understand, you sitting here today as a saved person, you are the fruit of Peter's ministry and Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And so am I. So I'm glad that the Lord restored him. Aren't you? It's okay to say amen if you want to, but only if you want to. (laughs) Point number one, Jesus predicted Peter's failure. If you remember, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus warned Peter that he was going to fail. When Peter denied Christ, if you remember, Jesus wasn't far away being beaten and being threatened with even worse. And if you remember, Peter was, or Jesus was within earshot and eyeshot or view of Peter's denials, but it didn't surprise Jesus. He wasn't caught off guard. On their way from the upper room to Gethsemane, this is what happens in Matthew 26. Listen closely. Then Jesus said to them, plural, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Okay, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus predicted Peter's failure. If you read this account over in chapter 22 of the book of Luke, you gain some more insight. And I want to tell you, it is troubling in its implications. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon. Behold, now listen folks, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. But go back to that phrase, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. Now let me ask you a question. Is Jesus answerable to Satan? Does Jesus owe Satan anything? An explanation or an action 
or a, some step of obedience in any way? Does Jesus owe Satan anything? The answer is no. It is a thousand times no. And yet it sounds like here as you read it that Jesus had to do what Satan wanted. Satan demanded to have you. Satan can make all of the demands he wants to make, but understand God is not obligated to respond to him. What you have here is something that is a little more complex and yet something that explains this phrase in deeper meaning if you read it and study it in its Greek language. Basically what it's saying is this. Satan has obtained you by asking for you. Satan demanded to have you, but his demand was a request. He was asking for permission to get hold of your life, to sift you like wheat. Now, that helps explain it, that Satan had to ask permission. By the way, there's an Old Testament example of this. Do you remember who it was? It was Job. It was Job. And we find it in Job chapter 1, where the angels, the sons of God, are coming to present themselves uh, to God. And there is Lucifer, the fallen angel, Satan, among them. For he used to be in their company. And evidently, by these, uh, by these uh, two examples, Satan still has some access to the throne of God. And so Jesus, or God, in the book of Job chapter 1, said, By the way, have you noticed my faithful servant Job? Evidently, Satan had been working on Job, and Job had been resisting. And Satan, Lucifer said, You've built a fence around him. If you will let me get to him, I'll turn him against you. And God the Father gave the devil permission. He said, you can do to Job anything you want to do to Job, but you cannot take his life. So what did he do? He took away his kids, his, first of all, his possessions. He was the wealthiest man in all the world. He took away his possessions. He took away his kids and their families to death. He killed them. And he took away Job's health to the point that Job was covered with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. All he could do was sit in sackcloth and ashes and to scrape the boils with some kind of instrument to cause the pus to break loose to give him a little bit of relief from the pain and pressure. And even his three best friends came along and told him his guilt was what brought this on him. Everyone in the world had turned against him, even his beloved wife, who told him more than once, curse God and die. Literally, curse God, get your last word in, and take your own life, and get your life miserably over with. He asked for permission, and God gave it. Satan asked for permission to afflict and to tempt Peter, and God gave him permission. Does that trouble you? I want you to know, at first glance, it troubles me deeply that God would let Lucifer, let Satan, do some of these evil things to his children. 
But then I'm reminded and I have great hope and I have great comfort in the fact that, listen, Satan can't do anything without God's permission. And when God gives permission, understand, it becomes the work of God rather than the weapon of the enemy. Did you hear me? Satan's attack and Satan's arrows, because they cannot strike you and me without God's permission, they become God's tools in our life when they do strike us. F.B. Meyer put it this way, we are in Christ. That's a, a phrase used over and over in the New Testament. Here's us and here's Christ. He lives not only within us, he is all around us. And Satan draws back his arrows, to, his bow, to send his arrows to us, to strike us, to harm us, to destroy us. But understand this, Jesus, that God has the, has the power to turn away many of the arrows of the enemy. But sometimes he lets the arrows of the enemy strike home and hit us. But before they do, they pass through Jesus because we are in him. And when, this, when the arrow of the enemy passes through Jesus and strikes home and hits us, it ceases to be the weapon of the enemy. It becomes the tool of God in our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. Satan obtained you by asking for you that he might sift you like wheat. Now in our days, in our grocery store products, probably none of you women ever have to sift anything Hardly at all anymore. But I remember my grandma having a sifter. You remember what that looked like? It had a handle on the side and it was metal and it had kind of mesh wire in the bottom and she would pour flour in that and there was a handle over here or there was a knob over here. Hers was, was a red knob that wouldn't that had been worn down to the wood. And I loved it when I saw her doing that because she let me do it. And I would hold it and she'd put the flour in and I'd begin to sift that. And you'd sift that flour and there was a wire that go around inside, and what it would do to that, to that uh, flower is that any lumps that were in it, it would break those lumps down and sift it out the bottom into the bowl that then it would make to perfection whatever it was she was making, whether it was crust for a, a peach cobbler or biscuits. That was either one was just as good as the other to me, and all God's people said, Amen. And so this is what sifting was. It was to get the lumps out. And so what Jesus was saying was, Peter, I have given Satan permission to work you over, to sift you like wheat. Why? Because you've got some lumps inside of you, Peter. You've got the lump of pride. You've got the lump of arrogance. You've got the lump of self-confidence. You've got the lumps of prejudice. You've got the lumps of false bravado. Peter, there are so many lumps inside of you. Oh, only Satan doing his work. And by the way, that's really me doing my work. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to sift you like wheat so that you'll become the person you need to be. I've already taken longer on this first point than I meant to. But I hope you get the point. Jesus predicted Peter's failure. Before we move on, 
listen to what pastor and author A.W. Tozer described uh, about these kinds of things God lets happen in our lives. He said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a person greatly until he has first of all hurt that person deeply. God actually rises up storms of conflict in relationships at times in order to accomplish that deeper work in our character that we really need. We cannot love our enemies in our own strength. This is graduate level grace. I love that. Are you willing to enter this school? Are you willing to take this test? If you pass, you can expect to be elevated to a new level in the kingdom. For he brings us through these tests as preparation for greater use in the kingdom. You must pass the test first. Before Peter could preach to thousands on the day of Pentecost, resulting in 3,000 salvation or saved souls, he had to go through the dark night of the soul that caused him to see himself, how sinful he was, and how different he needed to be. He needed to be sifted first. I'll walk through these other points more quickly. Number two, Jesus prayed for Peter. He not only predicted Peter's failure, He prayed for him. In that same passage, I did skip over one verse. If you're familiar with it, Luke 22, 31 through 32 says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, that it may not die out or come to an end. And when you have turned, when you have converted, turned back again and returned, you will strengthen, you will make steadfast and settle and confirm your brothers. Though you will be the biggest failure of them all, When you have been changed as a result of this struggle and of this failure, he said you will become a source of strength to your brethren. I can imagine on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaching away. Many of those in the crowd were some of the same ones that had cried out for Jesus to be crucified. Maybe Peter, no doubt Peter, was thinking, this will be my final moments on earth, for they'll do the same to me that they did to Jesus. And I can imagine the other apostles standing over to the side saying, man, look at Peter go. Who would have thought of that just a few days ago? Man, he he cursed and swore and denied he knew Jesus. Now look at him preach, Jesus. What a source of strength it was to those men. I want you to notice this. Jesus said, you're going to fail me, but I have prayed for you. Does it seem odd to you about Jesus praying for Peter? Didn't Jesus have the power just to make Peter whatever he wanted him to be? But Jesus prayed for Peter. It's kind of like when the devil tempted Jesus 
And Jesus three times could have absolutely just spoken destruction to the devil. He could have just dismissed him. He could have blown him away with one look and one word. But what did he do? He quoted scripture. He quoted scripture to the devil. Satan, remember what the word says. You know why Jesus did that? You know why Jesus took that strategic tactic of quoting scripture to the devil instead of just dismissing and blowing the devil away? You know why he did that? Because when the devil comes to you and me, we don't have the power to just totally dismiss the devil. We don't have the power to destroy him with one word as the song says. The best we can do is quote scripture to him and Jesus was leaving us an example. And here Jesus is leaving us another example. Peter, I could just fix things for you, but what I've done is I have prayed for you. Beloved, just think of it. Jesus was praying for Peter even before Peter's failure. And can I say this? Jesus has been praying for you. Not only before your failures of faith, not only before your sins committed, Jesus has been praying for you longer than you have been alive on this earth. If that very thought is not enough to bring you to your knees in praise and worship, I wonder what hope is there for any of us. Jesus has been praying for us. In the book of Hebrews, it says this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he Always, always, past, present, future, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus prayed for you before you were born. Jesus is praying for you now. Jesus will not cease to pray for you. He will save to the uttermost. As one evangelist says, it doesn't matter from the guttermost to the uttermost. Jesus can save you. Jesus can answer your prayers. Jesus is praying for you. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul says it this way in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Jesus is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is praying for you. Number three, Jesus paid for Peter's failure. He predicted it. He prayed for Peter. Now he paid for Peter's failure. I like that. Jesus not only prayed for Peter, he paid for Peter. There's a couple of points to make in this. He paid for Peter's sin by his sacrifice on the cross. Amen? Isn't that the truth? He was a perfect once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of mankind. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. There it is, the grace of God, wonderful grace of Jesus. The forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews chapter 10, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's in contrast to the priest all through the Old Testament era that offered sacrifices over and over and over again, daily, monthly, uh, quarterly, (laughs) annually, decade after decade, thousands of sacrifices. Jesus Our high priest offered one sacrifice. Then he sat down at the right hand of God, signifying the sacrifice was perfect. It was complete. It was accepted by the Father. And verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did you know? Did you know? I mean, our worship guide today, I I love that quote by by Tim Keller on the front. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I'm so thankful that that though we are all more sinful than we are willing to think or confess or imagine or admit to one another. And by the way, you are... You are, you're no better than the worst person out in the world when it comes to your sin. Your sin is no more acceptable to God than that mass murderer or that filthy drunk or that immoral person. Our sins are not more acceptable to God. We are all more sinful. But understand this, in one aspect, we are all already made perfect. In heaven, we are already, we are already perfected for all time. Those who are in the process of sanctification, we are moving towards completeness in Christ. But also in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul reminds us you are not your own, you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus predicted. Peter's failure. Jesus prayed for Peter. Jesus paid for Peter's sin, and he bought Peter for himself. He belongs now to the Lord, just like he paid for our sins and bought us with a price. And then as a result of that, number four, Jesus pardoned Peter. He pardoned Peter. That's what this story is all about. You see, Jesus could have rejected Peter. He could have marked him off. He could have dismissed him to his fishing. He could have left him a failure and wash out in ministry. Lord knows. It seems like there have been plenty of those. But he didn't. He is the God of the second chance. And guess what? He is the God of the third chance and the fourth and the fifth and the tenth and the twentieth and the hundredth, because I need more than just two chances. How about you? 
He is a God who takes what is broken and creates trophies of His grace. Trophies of His grace. Here is a key truth at work. I hope you'll remember this. No matter how far you have strayed from God, no matter how great your sin and your failure, the journey back is but one step. No matter how long you've been away from God, no matter how long you've been disobedient or disrespectful to His Word, no matter how far into sin you have strayed, and Satan tells you, why try to make it right? It's such a long journey. You'll never make your way all the way back. Remember, the trip back is only one step. Though your journey into sin and away from God may have lasted for a long, long time, the step back is but one. Confess and forsake your sin. Peter experienced a dark night of the soul when he went out and he wept bitterly. He could have, when he got back before Jesus on this occasion, he could have made excuses. He could have explained away his choice to curse the Lord and deny him. He could have tried to justify his actions. We try all those kinds of things, but that's not the way back. The way back is to confess. The way back is to return to the Lord. Why? Because if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number five, and this is the last point, Jesus powered Peter's ministry. Barely 50 days after his faith failure, this proud, profane, and prejudiced Peter stood up before a crowd of thousands and unashamedly proclaimed Christ. On that day, 3,000 people from all over the world heard the gospel in their language, and they were saved. Red and yellow, black and white, they were all precious in the Lord's sight. God used Peter to bring that about. And as we continue reading in the book of Acts, for the first 12 or so chapters, Peter is center stage. He is the most prominent person. Later, he is going to write the letters of First and Second Peter. And he's going to do so from a prison in Rome, where after writing those letters, evidently, Peter was crucified and history, I suppose, tells us, the word doesn't, that he said he was not worthy to be crucified as Jesus was. So he was crucified upside down. Peter, listen to me now, now listen closely. Peter had come to the end of himself so that he could say along with Paul, not I, but Christ. The reason Peter finished so strong was because Peter went through such a miserable failure and was forgiven, pardoned, and empowered 
to do God's will with great courage. You see, sometimes the only thing standing between you and your best years of service to God is your willingness to let God do a work on you to bring you to the end of yourself so that Christ can live in his fullness in your life. May that be each of our experience as we move forward in our Christian lives. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.